Hey there, and welcome to Legion of Misfits. My name is Rich. The purpose of this show is to help listeners as much as possible to connect to their worth through stories and other ideas. Because in this world, it feels like at times it's doing everything possible to force us to believe the opposite. When the truth is, wherever any one of us is at, we really are doing the best we can with wherever our mindset is, with whatever tools we have at our disposal in any moment. Sometimes those tools are powerful, other times, not so much. It's exactly where we need to be, and we're doing fine even if it doesn't look like it. So with that, I welcome you, and let's get into it. In this episode, which is the first under the name Legion of Misfits, I've done other podcasts under different names. This feels a little different, at least in my mind, so it's given a little different name and given myself a little more leeway to take it wherever it needs to go, realizing that whichever way that is, is going to be perfect. So anyway, I was inspired by reading something and bouncing off of my own experience learning about a concept that I don't believe is actually a official diagnosis in the DSM, but what I've learned is it is connected to neurodivergence, in particular ADHD, the piece called Rejection Sensitivity Dysphoria. Why I was so pulled to it, I never actually heard of it until maybe just a couple days ago, and I started to explore what that was. I don't know if it's something that I have or if it's something that I relate to. In studying it, I learned also that what could be considered RSD could also be a PTSD response, and it's all dependent on who looks at it and their background, their experience, and what they believe, which can be frustrating as hell for people who have known that something's been off and trying to find answers in a world where diagnosis doesn't necessarily explain the things, but in order for somebody to listen, maybe a thing that's necessary. It may connect somebody to medication that works. It may simply be a concept to remember when things are going wonky in the mind that allow us to separate and realize it's just the brain doing brain things. And it's not us. It's not real. It's just a story. And when it comes to handling rejection, we hear it all the time. And it's not untrue. A lot of what it is is simply not a match. It's everything to do with somebody realizing what they don't want or what's not a fit. Sometimes they go about some pretty crappy ways of going there, but we all do what we can with what we have to work with, of course, right? That makes sense. And some of us hear about how rejection gives us clarity. It can tell us that this is something that isn't necessarily right for us, or at least this direction isn't it, or there's something that needs to be tweaked. There's information there. And again, all of that is true. It's not the end of the world. It's just a shift. Some of us can get there a lot easier than others. 
based on their experience. They may have learned to separate things better or find resilience in other ways. They're able to let it slide off. Cool. Other people can't quite get there. And it's again got to do often with their experience. Maybe it is something simple as something going wonky in the mind, some combination of cortisol and adrenaline coming together in the wrong space to give us the wrong story and we get lost in those thoughts and beliefs around that. Or for others, it's a matter of having a traumatic experience that wired in and it programmed us so that for some people in their minds, they don't see being turned down by the job. They don't see getting passed over for the promotion as what it is. They don't see the breakup or being rejected on Tinder or whatever as what it is. They see something that happened earlier in life that really frigged some things up and often they go back there and they loop. And that's why so often you see people reacting in ways that logically don't make sense. They may shut down or they may never take another shot at something again or at least wait until they really think the probabilities are strongly in their favor to try again. So it can be really hard for some people to see past that. For myself, that's a lot of my experience. I was somebody that caught a lot of rejection growing up. It turned into being picked on at recess to getting shot down for dates as I got older and more interested in girls or getting cut from sports teams, losing elections, getting turned down for different things. And even now, at times, if I put a program out or offer a service or anything directly, it can still be hard when I get zero response to see it for what it is. I can give you an example of that in the last oh, couple of years. I don't know. Time's weird at this point. I was really connecting to someone and it was a distance thing. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a no-go, but I'm not in love with the idea of being in a distance relationship at this point. I need that physical proximity. Of course, never say never. That was a thing, but I found myself being really drawn to somebody feeling chemistry and feeling connection and just wanting to see where it goes. All of a sudden, it just stopped. This wasn't very deep at all. It was very, very early on. There was no point where there was any commitment expected or was even in the conversation. Having communication drop off shouldn't have been a big deal. And then a couple weeks later, finding out that they'd met somebody local and seemed happy and lovey-dovey and whatnot. And I didn't judge the situation. I was happy for them. And I could see logically, okay, this wasn't a fit. There was distance. There was a connection closer, local, more of a fit. Awesome. You want that for people. You want people to be happy and find the win-win. On a level, I knew that. But on another level, it felt like I was this destroyed 12-year-old that had his heart stomped on. And was, I found myself so judgmental of my own reaction that I couldn't hold the space 
for that inner 12-year-old or 13-year-old that was having that traumatic loop come back up. He wasn't thinking about the current situation. He was flashing back to the time in school where he asked the girl out and she laughed and like the rest of the school was laughing at him. That was what was going on. I couldn't see it and I couldn't connect to it. I just kept getting mad at that 12-year-old, which didn't help. It didn't process things really well. It looped for way longer than it ever should have. Understanding that there is an idea such as RSD out there tells me that okay, that was probably what was going on and that's where the loop was coming from. Even if that's not what I have, the idea that it could be something gives me just enough separation to see, okay, this is a story. This is my brain having a reaction with what it's got going on. Now I can separate from it and I can support it. I can see it for what it is and use that to find some peace. So let's talk about RSD a little bit. I'm going to pull up some pieces that talk about different stories and I connected with mine a little bit. I'm going to share a couple other stories and then at the end, I'm going to share something cool that it could connect. It might not. Either way, it's really cool. I don't care. I'm sharing it. So let's get into it. I'm going to refer to a piece I found on neuroclastic.com. I'm going to add all the links to the show notes, so don't stress that. You'll be able to go and read them for yourself. This one is called Living with Rejection-Sensitive Dysphoria. I have had experiences of rejection-sensitive dysphoria, RSD, from an incredibly early age. I believe it's related to emotional dysregulation and made worse by negative experiences, from continually not measuring up, from people rejecting the core of my being and, in a lot of ways, from living as a neurodivergent person in a world not made for people like me. I was always different growing up. As a child, I just didn't fit in and found it hard to relate to other kids and harder to make friends. I was the odd kid from the poor family everyone talked about. I was used to being alone except for my brother and sister from an early age. One of my earliest childhood memories of rejection was a birthday party that I had been invited to by the mother of a classmate. We weren't friends, and in fact, at the time, I had no friends but was excited to be invited to something. My mother and I went to the town shop and bought a small robot tank you could control and drive around. She helped me wrap the gift and walked me down to the child's house. When I got to the party, there was a cubby house out the back. After a somewhat lackluster reception of my gift, many kids brought more expensive things. They were going to play some games in there. I followed and was chastised by the child as I tried to enter. I was told I was strange and that they didn't want me in there. This cut deeply and I broke down and cried and cried. The child's mother told her son off and tried to make me go into the cubby house with the others, but I could not. I could still feel the pain I felt at this, still summon up those feelings of a five-year-old rejected. Flash forward many years later, and I'd been invited to a party by someone from high school, and a very similar thing happened. I had plucked up the courage to attend the party, and had arrived early. Later, some of the cooler kids had arrived. One of them had noticed me and said to the girl whose party it was, What are they doing here? They were teasing the host about having invited me. 
I still hadn't shaken that strange kid label in high school. Having overheard, I felt intense rejection again, made worse by hearing the girls say something to the effect of, I felt sorry for them. The debilitating hurt shot through me, and when the jock had moved on, I went to leave the party. The girl and her mother noticed and asked me what was wrong. I felt shame at feeling the way I did, told them I was unwell, and left the party. I sat on the side of the road for a while, gathered myself together, and walked home slowly. Yeah, that one relates. Going to continue on into what is rejection-sensitive dysphoria. But before I do, I just want to remind people it should be common sense, but this is not intended to be medical advice. These are only ideas to share. Feel free to discuss with any medical or mental health professionals, but always defer to them as you continue your journey along those ways. This is not intended for treatment. This is not intended as anything more than information, ideas, and possibilities. So see it with that mind, please. Rejection-sensitive dysphoria, or RSD for short, is a common issue experienced by neurodivergent people. It is thought to be caused by increased difficulty in regulating our emotions, which leads to an incredibly heightened sense of rejection. Put simply, it is an increased sensitivity to rejection, and the rejection does not have to be real. It can be imagined or feared. RSD can be incredibly intense, and we can feel it to the core of our being as intense physical pain, discomfort, and sensory overwhelm. It can be almost impossible to rein in those sensations when an intense episode is triggered. One thing that can be learned with having RSD is that often we can recall every intense moment of hurt and rejection like it was yesterday. If we could forget that hurt, maybe RSD would not be the debilitating issue that it is. Each rejection makes RSD more likely and reinforces it. It piles up like the bricks in a wall. With ADHD, I was often chastised for misunderstandings, simple instructions, forgetting things, not finishing what we start, doing things the wrong way, not caring enough, being too emotional, not being emotional enough. I soon ended up carrying so much baggage relating to how I'd been rejected that it felt like everything I did would result in rejection. After a time, we often learn to become people pleasers to try to counter the rejection by being more helpful, seeking approval, and saying yes to everything because we are trying to counterbalance that teeter-totter of rejection approval. If we make ourselves needed, they can't make us leave, right? Of course, with executive function issues, we are often unable to finish what we start or adhere to and honor our commitments to others easily for a multitude of reasons. This can, in turn, lead to more heightened experiences of rejection when those same people question our dedication and for over-promising and under-delivering yet again. In the end, we can layer rejection upon rejection on top of one another and potentially burn out as we overload ourselves. RSD becomes a barrier to functioning when every interaction is a potential source of rejection. We become so fearful of the debilitating physical and emotional toll of rejection that we become extremely risk-averse. Everything needs to be analyzed, tone-interrogated, something I've always struggled with. Me too. And we actively look for rejection in situations, people, and their actions. I would send an email or a text, and if I didn't get a prompt response, I'd start thinking that I'd somehow upset the recipient. Maybe I would get a response in question, but it would seem abrupt. An okay, or a thumbs up, or a K, in response to my question in an email could trigger my RSD because it lacked sufficient context to prove it wasn't rejection. Off to the side, for me, so often it's why I struggle a lot with initiating texts or messages or emails or conversations. Back to it. 
Also, often I'd become so concerned about not causing offense with an email, I might spend two hours writing it, redrafting it again and again, until I could not find a way to be offended by it. And even then, I might not send it because I feared I had missed something. I've done that with articles. The more we know about how we are perceived, the clearer things are, the less control it has. By avoiding feedback, I was actually compounding the RSD because the longer things went on without feedback, without knowing that I was doing a good or bad job, the more fear of soliciting that feedback I became. I denied myself the opportunity to course correct, to take on constructive feedback, and eventually I had to deliver my changes and due to inattentiveness, they were wrong. Every so often I'll come across something that really feels unfair or really feels like an attack, real or perceived, but for the most part, feedback can be something that really creates clarity, even the negative stuff. There's an opportunity to learn from or an opportunity to see that maybe this this is not really where I should be and I need to move on. Now the writer goes on to finish the story. My issues with RSD and not soliciting feedback and making mistakes ended up with me being sent a meeting request with no context with my manager and a representative of HR for the following Monday at 9 a.m. This email was sent at 5 p.m. Friday. I did not sleep bar a few hours during the time. For the whole weekend, I had a knot in my chest. I cleaned off my work laptop because I was convinced I was going to be fired. In the meeting that Monday, I broke down sobbing hysterically for close to 30 minutes. I broke down completely emotionally and my boss and HR were shocked. Yes, there were issues with my performance and yes, they wanted me to go onto a performance improvement plan, but they didn't want to fire me. I told them I hadn't slept because of the meeting invite with no context sent on the Friday night. My boss was shocked and said, we did that to minimize your worry. I did not understand I was neurodivergent at the time, but understood my issues around not having enough information. I cried and said it was the worst possible thing you could have done. In an odd way, it can feel like the RSD is trying to protect us and therein is a lie. By causing us to disengage and avoid sources of rejection, RSD forces us to other ourselves without a real reason, which makes us feel more isolated than more rejected in turn. Othering ourselves to avoid possible rejection still builds up that same wall of negative experience and shame. I will return to that article in a little bit because there is some other good stuff that I want to share, but... I want to go a little deeper into the understanding of what this is that is being described. I found this Twitter stream that was copied onto a, an article on Board Panda that I'm going to read verbatim to you, and it should be able to connect to those who think this may land for them, and also hopefully connect to those who this doesn't resonate to, but maybe it describes somebody that they care for and helps them to understand a little bit and what they need and what kind of space and what kind of support they can best love them with going forward. I'll start with reading this thread. There are a lot of symptoms of ADHD that are just awful to live with, but the one that takes the cake by far is rejection sensitivity dysphoria. This fucker, this fucker will fly in on a broom and shit all over your good day. It'll take a thing you love and make you loathe it. You're out enjoying an activity with friends, something you've been looking forward to, something you're excited and passionate about, and then someone might say or do something innocuous like, okay, okay, calm down, or wait, that's not going to work. Or someone will give you a side eye and a smirk, or casually brush off a joke with, but anyways. And suddenly, there's a familiar, awful, 
hit in your stomach. Suddenly, for some reason, you feel stupid for having wanted to participate. You feel like a burden on the activity. You feel like folks here are trying to enjoy themselves, not with you, but despite you. And suddenly, the thing you're doing that you enjoy so much, that you counted the days down to in your eagerness to partake, suddenly it's dreadful. Your interest in it drops like a stone. You don't want to be a part anymore. You want to go home by yourself and hide from the responsibility of it. Why? What happened? A normal human interaction happened that your brain interpreted as they don't like what you're doing. You're doing it wrong. You're letting them down. That's putting words to it, but there are no actual thought words. It's just a gut punch feeling. That same gut punch feeling you might experience when you suddenly remember that you left your phone on the train or that you dropped your wallet somewhere. Terror. Ears turn red hot. And in that terror, you can't focus on anything else except trying to figure out if these people actually wished you weren't there right now. But you're too embarrassed to ask because half of you knows it's silly to feel that way and the other half knows they're annoyed at you. So you get through it quietly and when they invite you to do the thing again, you say, no thanks, I'm not any good at it so I don't really enjoy it as much as I hoped I would. Though most of the time, you don't even try the first time because you don't want to be bad at it. You don't want people to judge you. You don't want to let them down. The thought is painful so you just avoid putting yourself out there to be judged at all. RSD robs the joy out of things so absolutely. Hobbies, leisurely activities competitive games, conversations. It's the worst and I haven't come across an effective coping mechanism yet. Oh man, this has resonated with so many folks. There's a lot I wish I could directly respond to, but there's just so much. On one hand, it breaks my heart to see how many people struggle with this. On the other hand, I am so happy to put a name to it for a lot of you. You're not alone in this struggle. You're not broken nor weak. I love you and I want you to take the risks, and do the things you love with the people you love. The folks who love you want you to be happy, and they will work with you to help you find understanding and enjoyment. For the folks that don't understand the abnormality here, the rejection that triggers RSD symptoms are often perceived, exaggerated, and not based in, nor proportionate to the reality of the situation at all. It's normal to feel hurt when someone genuinely rejects you or dislikes you. It's not normal to imagine that rejection and then react very strongly and painfully to that imagined rejection as if it was real. And let me share some of the responses to that. I did not know there was a term for this. I tried explaining all of this to one of my friends and I felt like I was looking like a madman. Thank you, thank you for sharing this and letting others, myself, have a term for this awful feeling. I hate this because it makes me feel super annoyed annoying to enjoy things to the point I get literally depressed over the smallest lack of response or just maybe weird comments someone's made. Just, ah. The symptoms many people focus on during diagnosis are often just the symptoms most likely to be visible bothersome to others. It doesn't fit well with the hyperactivity narrative, so it gets overlooked all the time. And that's a problem in itself. You tell a doctor and they start classifying it as a generalized anxiety disorder rather than helping you with it specifically. Specifically. <sighs>
as a mom with a son of ADHD, this really helped me understand why he has a hard time sticking with new things he seemed to love when he first started. Do you, what? This is a real thing that other people have too? I seriously thought I was the only one. But is it only a function of ADHD? Because I don't think I have ADHD. It's something that has a lot in common with and is often misdiagnosed as other mood disorders such as anxiety, bipolar disorder, and depression. Even if you don't have ADHD, other mood disorders can be very similar. And this goes on and on. This isn't just an ADHD thing. It can be autism. It can be BPD, bipolar, or social anxiety. So there's a lot of confusion out there with this. Let me go from here to another article I found on The Mighty that connects it to similar things that are seen with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. The point you're going to get from going through all of these is I want people to see that if they're going through this, they're not alone. There's certainly different possibilities as to what they might be. And ultimately, I keep thinking about this term one of my old professors used to use, biopsychosocial. Everything, he insisted, had a biological, psychological, social aspect to it. That's evolved through the years as folks like Gabor Mate have added a spiritual element to it because that also is at play as well. Everything's connected is the point. Long after my PTSD diagnosis, I was diagnosed with ADHD and started learning more about RSD as a result. So many things about RSD rang true for me. I anticipate rejection over even the smallest things. I people please constantly and at times social situations feel debilitating. What I had realized though is that these symptoms that resonated with RSD were things that I had always attributed to my CPTSD. As I continued my research, I stumbled upon a different theory entirely that RSD is indeed a trauma response. But a trauma response to being a neurodiverse individual constantly being expected to fit in a neurotypical society. As I reflected on this, I saw where people were coming from. I thought about how often I felt ostracized over things I now realize were my own neurodivergence and how that led to shifts in behavior patterns. Were some of the things that made me feel ostracized initiated by people who abused me, thus causing my CPTSD? Absolutely. The starkest example that comes to mind was when I was a teenager. I was criticized for being too much when I made silly faces for pictures at a dance, being sat down and forced to look through every other photo from that night, and then being asked, Why can't, you, can't you just be more normal? Still, other times that come to mind are far more innocent. Knowing that I was always the odd one out in social settings as a child, the last one picked for teams, the one no one chose to partner with for group projects, the one who never seemed to know the inside joke that everyone else was laughing at, and even finding out that sometimes that the joke was me. Especially as a child, those things hit me hard. Maybe I'll never know what's RSD and what's my CPTSD. Maybe some of it is both. I doubt that anyone with ADHD hasn't had experiences like the ones I described above, and if we're being honest, nothing solidly differentiates the first example I gave from the second other than the fact the first was done by someone who was also abusive. Still, I clearly have a trauma response when something triggers me in a way that relates to that experience, and I don't know that it's fair to say that the fact that an abuser is the one who said that to me is the only thing that made that traumatic. Either way, there are certainly more similarities to RSD and CPTSD than one would initially assume, and 
I hope more research is done to look into this further. There is a lot to unwrap here, even if it's not a straight-up diagnosis. I'm going to read one more story. It's called Emotional Sunburn, What Rejection-Sensitive Dysphoria Feels Like to Me, written by an Amanda Morin. He doesn't seem that bothered when other kids tease him. I was literally speechless when the school social worker said this of my eight-year-old son, who has ADHD and autism. Everything bothers him. And on top of that, he has a tell. When Benjamin is upset or heard about something that he thinks others will say is no big deal, he purses his lips together so they don't tremble and blinks his eyes very, very quickly. I guess if you don't know him well, it's subtle enough that you might not see it at first. Even people who do know him well, like my husband, didn't see it. But I've never missed it. I've never missed Benjamin's tell because I have a similar one and more importantly, I know the feeling that's behind it. It's knowing you may be overreacting to something small but also feeling it with such emotional intensity that it hurts. I've heard people call it an emotional sunburn. The idea is that when you have a sunburn, even a light pat on the shoulder is jarringly painful. An emotional sunburn completely disrupts your ability to self-regulate. It short-circuits your ability to produce a typical emotional response. That's why Benjamin's tell is subtle. He's frozen. In technical terms, some researchers refer to this as RSD. It's very common in people with ADHD and sensory processing issues, both of which Benjamin has. I have sensory processing issues too. People who experience RSD get very upset when there's conflict or when they think they've been rejected. Just like sensory processing issues and ADHD can cause sensory overload, they can cause emotional overload too. It's why I panic when someone says to me, can I talk to you later? Or schedules a meeting without telling me what it's about. I always worry they have something bad to tell me or are unhappy with me. When I write something online, I obsess or worry over what someone on the internet might think of me, even though intellectually, I know they don't know me or the specific circumstances of my life. So. Please be kind in the comments of this post. I'm running low on emotional sunblock. I don't like it when people say to me, your kids are so lucky to have you as a mom. You know just how to help them. It's right up there with what doesn't kill you makes you stronger in my list of top 10 phrases that may be true, but that don't make me feel any better. As a parent with learning and thinking differences, I see things in my kids that I know I've passed down to them and wish fervently that I hadn't. RSD is one of those things. It's hard for me to watch Benjamin feel things as intensely as I do. That's what's so frustrating about that phrase. I feel guilty. I feel responsible. I guess that's the whole point. I feel. I feel it all and there's no quick remedy for an emotional sunburn. Still, it's true. I do know how to help him. Knowing how little things can sting has often helped me figure out why Benjamin reacts to things that nobody else thinks is a big deal. Things other people don't even notice. I'm often able to see what's at the core of why Benjamin is upset even when my husband doesn't. I'm never going to be able to stop the emotional sun from beating down on my son. But I can teach him to find and create shady spaces inside himself where he doesn't let the sun burn him. I can apply my best dose of empathy to help relieve the sting. And I can show the school social worker what his tell looks like and watch her face change as she recognizes it and says, Oh, I've seen him do that. I had no idea that's what it meant. So thanks for continuing to stick with me. There's a lot to unpack here and we probably haven't even touched the tip of the iceberg. And I think we may end up with more questions than answers. I would love for those questions or thoughts to be shared. Not only is it important to have these conversations, that's the best way for me to get ideas for future shows is to be able to respond to an idea or a 
comment and let that guide me to where it needs to go. With that in mind, I'll continue on. We're going to go back to that neuroclastic article and section called Living with RSD. Things to consider when we're trying to figure it out, when we're working in connection to our loved ones and medical and mental health professionals, if any of this resonates and maybe we're figuring out, okay, now what? Important things first. Please don't let anyone tell you that these experiences are wrong or invalid. It's real what you're feeling in terms of the physical and emotional experience. It is real and it is valid. We shouldn't feel shame for the way we experience emotions or the way our brains are wired. RSD can trigger our fight or flight responses, often making us feel we need immediate distance from the source of the feelings. During an event, it's the worst possible time to take definitive actions about something. You may want to leave a group, quit your job, or sever ties with the person in question. Our brains and nervous systems scream at us to do something, anything to end the feeling or reduce the risk of it. The best we can do do in the short term is to find temporary retreat somewhere calm and wait for the intense feelings to pass decisions made in the heat of the moment can cause regret and further feelings of isolation been there done that someone said to me in a conversation about ocd that not all thoughts are true and we need to understand that the same is absolutely true of rsd to me when i'm caught up in it It can feel very much like rumination, constantly turning over a negative thought in my head over and over, reinforcing it with every loop. It can pull in other thoughts, and soon it feels like a spiral of negative thought. And I found, as mentioned before, that my RSD thrives in the absence of information to contradict it. That information void or abyss is where it dwells in the what-ifs, the maybes, the possibilities. The bigger we make that space in our lives, the more it can thrive. If we have some way to express the why of what we are feeling, it can be good to get it out and articulate it. This might be talking to a friend or journaling or some other process. Get the thought and the why outside your mind somehow. Bring it out so that you can see it in daylight instead of just feeling it. If you feel you've upset someone, sometimes the only thing we can do is ask them because worst case scenario, you have upset them where you feel you are now. And best case scenario is that it was imagined or a misunderstanding. This can be hard because we still need to handle the possibility that we are right, but at least we know it becomes a fact. It may offer an opportunity to clear the air and stop the what if feelings that plague us. Choose sometimes knowledge. Even if it's not what we want or hope, knowledge can break the loop. If someone else has done something to trigger your rejection sensitivity, it can be difficult to decide whether or not to approach them over it so that you can clear the air between you. If that person doesn't understand rejection sensitivity, they will likely not understand how we could be so upset over what they might consider a seemingly innocuous action. Sometimes I can feel very left out and rejected when people name others around me in my peer group but don't name me. The feelings of being other surface and the RSD swells in my chest. Socially related RSD can be very hard to deal with because we seemingly have the choice of staying quiet about it or engaging with the other parties involved to try to resolve it. Trying to resolve the issue with another party always feels risky to me because I might open myself up to further rejection. Staying quiet may also mean we disengage with that person for fear of another event proving the RSD correct. 
it's hard, but after my own experiences, I recommend to solicit feedback regularly, especially at work. It's a lot better to find out something needs to change earlier. Checking in can help to avoid a large rejection trigger later. If you are worried about the tone of a communication, maybe run either actual communication or the broad gist of it past another person, which can be hard in some workplaces or when working in isolation. I'm aware that there is a balance between under-communication and over-communication. Now, to any bosses out there, you can help by keeping a steady channel of feedback open. Not just the negative feedback or when things aren't correct, but positive feedback as well. We need to unlearn the idea that soliciting feedback is an entirely negative experience and I'm gonna interject I've seen that after the fact having been out of the quote-unquote matrix for a few years realizing that yeah people don't often hear that they're doing a good job and they really need to and sometimes that's what can cure an issue their anxiety drops when they know that there are things that are doing well and they're being seen it's just really important for the culture for the environment for people to know that they matter and what they bring to the table is important it is absolutely critical to me back to the article that i hear if you are happy with my work and if you are not give me opportunities to course correct never make meeting invites ambiguous never send an invite saying catch up with no context this, as discussed above, was a massive trigger for me. Even if I'm doing well and performing my job, I'm probably thinking you are going to fire me, even if I don't have evidence to the contrary. We need to interrogate our thoughts and realize that not all thoughts are true. We need not to live in the maybes because uncertainty is where the RSD lives. We need to accept that we are going to experience RSD and it's not wrong to feel what we feel. Our brains are wired differently, that's all. We should not be ashamed of that. Of course, there are times when people truly reject us and those are the hardest times of all and I spoke about that early on in the show it is what it is and it is often necessary for us but that doesn't mean it's not hard to experience in the moment I'm feeling an incredible amount of RSD about how this may be received because yeah true for some people I think there are going to be plenty of people that hear this and connect and be like oh damn that me I also think there are going to be people that hear this and just not get it. For those who don't get it, I offer it as an invitation to understand it may not be you, but it could very much be someone you hold dearly. It could be a spouse or a partner. It could be a parent. It could be a child. Most things aren't diagnosed, and if they are, it's not an exact science anyway it's a work in progress so i imagine there's still plenty of people out there who may feel this stuff and not understand why and again i'm not saying that this is what it is there's so many different possibilities out there there's so many different combinations and science doesn't have all the answers medicine doesn't but there may be some understanding that a little bit of an explanation of okay this is why i operate in the way i do and to be able to see that and see yourself and just get enough clarity to, as i was saying before when these episodes start to flare up to at least be able to in the middle of that massive wave of feelings that may or may not make sense and that really hurt and really crush in the moment that there's a sense of this isn't entirely real and i don't have to react to it and i can let it pass in whatever way i need to 
to get through the day or just get through the moment. And sometimes that's the thing we need the most. Let's wrap this with something. I'm not going to necessarily say it's lighter, but it's heartwarming. It feels good. And give ourselves a moment to feel some feels for a couple of minutes. And I found this in a couple of different places on Facebook in the last few days. And this feels great to share. It's a short story called Letter in the Wallet. And it was written in 1985 by Arnold Fine. As I walked home one freezing day, I stumbled on a wallet someone had lost in the street. I picked it up and looked inside to find some identification so I could call the owner. But the wallet contained only $3 and a crumpled letter that looked as if it had been in there for years. The envelope was worn and the only thing that was legible on it was the return address. I started to open the letter, hoping to find some clue. And then I saw the date. 1924. The letter had been written almost 60 years ago. It was written in a beautiful feminine handwriting on powder blue stationery with a little flower in the left-hand corner. It was a Dear John letter that told the recipient, whose name appeared to be Michael, that the writer could not see him anymore because her mother forbade it. Even so, she wrote that she would always love him. It was signed, Hannah. It was a beautiful letter, but there was no way, except for the name Michael, that the owner could be identified. Maybe if I called information, the operator could find a phone listing for the address on the envelope. Operator, I began. This is an unusual request. I'm trying to find the owner of a wallet that I found. Is there any way you can tell me if there's a phone number for an address that was on an envelope in the wallet? She suggested I speak with her supervisor, who hesitated for a moment and then said, Well, there is a phone listing at that address, but I can't give you the number. She said, as a courtesy, she would call the number, explain my story, and would ask them if they wanted her to connect with me. I waited a few minutes, and then she was back on the line. I have a party who will speak with you. I asked the woman on the other end of the line if she knew anyone by the name of Hannah. She gasped. Oh, we bought this house from a family who had a daughter named Hannah, but that was over 30 years ago. Would you know where that family could be located now? I asked. I remember that Hannah had to place her mother in a nursing home some time ago. The woman said, maybe if you got in touch with them, they might be able to track down the daughter. She gave me the name of the nursing home and I called the number. They told me the old lady had passed away some years ago, but they did have a phone number for where they thought the daughter might be living. I thanked them and phoned. The woman who answered me explained that Hannah herself was not living in a nursing home. This whole thing was stupid, I thought to myself. Why was I making such a big deal over finding the owner of a wallet that had only $3 and a letter that was almost 60 years old? Nevertheless, I called the nursing home in which Hannah was supposed to be living and the man who answered the phone told me, yes, Hannah is staying with us. Even though it was already 10 p.m., I asked if I could come by to see her. Well, he said hesitatingly, if you want to take a chance, she might be in the day room watching television. I thanked him and drove over to a nursing home. The night nurse and a guard greeted me at the door. We went up to the third floor of the large building. In the day room, the nurse introduced me to Hannah. 
She was a sweet, silver-haired old-timer with a warm smile and a twinkle in her eye. I told her about finding the wallet and showed her the letter. The second she saw the powder blue envelope with that little flower on the left, she took a deep breath and said, Young man, this letter was the last contact I ever had with Michael. She looked away for a moment, deep in thought, and then said softly, I loved him very much, but I was only 16 at the time, and my mother felt I was too young. Oh, he was so handsome. He looked like Sean Connery, the actor. Yes, she continued. Michael Goldstein was a wonderful person. If you should find him, tell him I think of him often, and... She hesitated for a moment, almost biting her lip. Tell him I still love him, you know? She said, smiling, as tears began to well up in her eyes. I never did marry. I guess no one ever matched up to Michael. I thanked Hannah and said goodbye. I took the elevator to the first floor, and as I stood by the door, the guard there asked, Was the old lady able to help you? I told him she had given me a lead. At least I have a name, but I think I'll let it go for a while. I spent almost the whole day trying to find the owner of this wallet. I had taken out the wallet, which was a simple brown leather case with red lacing on the side. When the guard saw it, he said, Hey, wait a minute. That's Mr. Goldstein's wallet. I'd know it anywhere with that bright red lacing. He's always losing that wallet. I must have found it in the halls at least three times. Who's Mr. Goldstein? I asked as my hand began to shake. He's one of the old timers on the eighth floor. That's Mike Goldstein's wallet for sure. He must have lost it on one of his walks. I thanked the guard and quickly ran back to the nurse's station. I told her what the guard had said. We went back to the elevator and I got on. I prayed that Mr. Goldstein would be up. On the eighth floor, the floor nurse said, I think he's still in the day room. He likes to read at night. He's a darling old man. We went to the only room that had any lights on and there was a man reading a book. The nurse went over to him and asked if he had lost his wallet. Mr. Goldstein looked up with surprise, put his hand in his back pocket, and said, Oh, it is missing. This kind gentleman found a wallet, and we wondered if it could be yours. I handed Mr. Goldstein the wallet, and the second he saw it, he smiled with relief and said, Yes, that's it. It must have dropped out of my pocket this afternoon. I want to give you a reward. No, thank you, I said. But I have to tell you something. I read the letter in the hope of finding out who owned the wallet. The smile on his face suddenly disappeared. You read that letter? Not only did I read it, I think I know where Hannah is. He suddenly grew pale. Hannah? You know where she is? How is she? Is she still as pretty as she was? Please, please tell me, he begged. She's fine, just as pretty as when you knew her, I said softly. The old man smiled with anticipation and asked, Could you tell me where she is? I want to call her tomorrow. He grabbed my hand and said, You know something, mister? I was so in love with that girl that when that letter came, my life literally ended. I never married. I guess I've always loved her. Mr. Goldstein, I said. Come with me. We took the elevator down to the third floor. The hallways were darkened and only one or two little nightlights lit our way to the day room where Hannah was sitting alone watching the television. The nurse walked over to her. Hannah, she said softly, pointing to Michael, who was waiting with me in the doorway. Do you know this man? She adjusted her glasses, looked for a moment, but didn't say a word. Michael said softly, almost in a whisper, Hannah, it's Michael. Do you remember me? 
She gasped. Michael, I don't believe it. Michael, it's you. My Michael. He walked slowly toward her, and they embraced. The nurse and I left with tears streaming down our faces. See, I said, see how it works. If it's meant to be, it will be. About three weeks later, I got a call at my office from the nursing home. Can you break away on Sunday to attend a wedding? Michael and Hannah are going to tie the knot. It was a beautiful wedding with all the people at the nursing home dressed up to join in the celebration. Hannah wore a light beige dress and looked beautiful. Michael wore a dark blue suit and stood tall. They made me their best man. The hospital gave them their own room. And if you ever wanted to see a 76-year-old bride and a 79-year-old groom acting like two teenagers, you had to see this couple. A perfect ending for a love affair that had lasted nearly 60 years. Again, Letter in the Wallet, written by Arnold Fine in 1985. And with that, I want to thank you for spending some time with me and hope to see you again soon. Please, if any part of this really stuck to you and you want to share your experience, I'd love to hear it. Feel free to connect with me on my social media or shoot me an email. I'm going to leave those in the notes as well. As with all the resources I used and further information, thank you again. Take care and be well. The intent and purpose of this and all episodes is simply to inform and offer ideas and possibilities for further exploration by the listener on their own time. Nothing said is to be taken as medical or any other professional advice. Please consult with your service providers, your medical and mental health professionals, before trying anything you may hear on this or any other program. Legion of Misfits, the host, or any platforms or any resources used do not acknowledge responsibility for any contrary actions taken by any listener. Copyright 2022, Legion of Misfits, all rights reserved.